One other announcement that uh, I overlooked. One of the things that I'm hoping we can do a little more often is to participate with North Stonington Bible Church and some of the things that they're doing for uh, young people, children, teenagers. They usually have a camp every year. And this year, I've got a brochure up here. There's a couple out on the table. Their summer youth week is on the, located on the grounds of uh, the church over there in North Stonington on Sunday through Friday, July 20th to 25th. So if you are interested, that covers ages 7 through 12. And if you want some more information on that, then you can check the uh, brochure in the back. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you that we can come together to worship you through the teaching of your word, to learn how to think, to learn how to live, to learn how to look at life from your perspective. Father, we thank you that we have a nation. We live in a nation where we have the freedoms to do this. We thank you for our president. We thank you for uh, those in Congress, those in government leadership positions who understand the principle of freedom through military victory and who are not afraid of those who oppose them and must and have the courage to stand fast to do that which must be done. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over uh, those in this congregation that are in the Middle East. Father, we pray that you would keep them safe and bring them home safely. We continue to pray for our all of those who serve in the armed services that you would give them courage in combat if necessary that you would protect them, that you would be their security, and that you would enable them to find the leaders who are yet missing. So, Father, we pray that you would give us the victory. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to study your word. We understand that real freedom, true freedom, comes only from your word. Jesus said you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we learn Bible doctrine in order that we may have true freedom of soul, and understand real freedom, no matter what our external consequences or external circumstances may be. 
Now we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this morning and to apply them to our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 3 John. We continue with the last phrase in 3 John 2. 3 John 2 reads, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. Now, two weeks ago we began this verse with a study of the heresy of prosperity theology, health and wealth theology, the born-again Jesus, word of faith movement, and all the other titles it's known by. And we saw that they take this verse out of context and they apply it to each individual in a material sense. That what John is really saying here is, I pray that you will have prosperity and health and that Christians should have prosperity and health. And we saw that that's not at all what it is saying. What this verse is teaching or what this verse is saying basically in that clause is what was a standard form of greeting in the ancient world. But just as Paul also uses standard forms of greeting uh, that were typical of epistolary literature at that time, John adds to it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Both Paul and John use standard forms of greeting, but they put a little twist on it to give it a doctrinal or spiritual dimension. And so John says, just as your soul prospers. Last time we looked at the question, what destroys the soul? And the number one enemy of the soul is the sin nature. When Adam sinned and acquired a sin nature, he died spiritually and his soul was in crisis. We're all born with a soul in crisis, a soul that is sick. We're spiritually dead. We have a constitutional problem, but we have a sick soul, a soul in crisis, because it is under the control of the sin nature. Whenever the soul is under control of the sin nature, then the soul is under the pressure of internal stress. Remember, adversity is, op- is uh, optional. Our adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is what circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. And the unbeliever, because he can only operate on the, on the sin nature, only has two options, and that is he can function in the area of personal sin or the area of human good. Human good will give him a measure of stability, will give him a measure of of control over his circumstances and a measure of happiness, but it is nothing like that which is promised to the believer. The number one enemy of the For the soul is the sin nature, and we looked at several products of the sin nature that destroy the soul. The first was the area of arrogance, and we looked at five arrogant skills, developing a new one. The first arrogant skill is self-absorption. That's where we just focus on ourselves. The first thing that naturally comes to us is, how is this going to affect me? What's that going to do in my life? And we're just naturally, that's the natural orientation of the sin nature is self-absorption. The more we yield to self-absorption, the more we give in to it, and we become self-indulgent. And we give in to every whim. We lose things such as real self-discipline and self-control, and we just do whatever seems to make us happy, whatever seems to stimulate our emotions and to give us some measure of pleasure and avoid any difficulty or pain in life. This leads to self-justification, where we develop all kinds of rationales to 
uh, justify our behavior so that we don't have to see ourselves as we really are, as God sees us, but we somehow convince ourselves that everything is really okay and that God must be impressed with how well I'm doing. This, of course, is self-deception because in place of God and worshiping God, we are worshiping self, and this is the fifth arrogant skill, which is self-deification. So the first enemy of the soul was arrogance. The second that we looked at was bitterness and jealousy, which I chose as representative of an entire array of mental attitude sins which eat away at the soul. Each of these is a product of self-absorption in response to some real or perceived wrong uh, that is done to us. Somebody has said something that offends us. Somebody has rejected us. So if you go through a job situation where you lose your job or you go through uh, romance or marriage failure, all of these areas of rejection can result if you react with the sin nature in bitterness and jealousy. Third category that destroys the soul are worry and anxiety and fear. Worry, anxiety, and fear. These destroy the sin, I mean, destroy the soul and eat away from the inside out and produce soul trauma. Then we looked at three attacks on the soul. The first was the outside pressure of adversity. This is any kind of situation. It may be prosperity. It may be uh, adversity. It may be positive. It may be negative. What happens is in any kind of situation, even when God is giving us wonderful things in life and we are uh, experiencing tremendous prosperity, it puts pressure on the soul. How do we respond to it? And those that I have talked to that have experienced tremendous uh, financial prosperity, tremendous uh, career prosperity, a, young, uh, a man I know is a good friend, has seen his, uh, his business just explode over the last 10 years. And several years ago, he told me on the phone, he said, it was one thing when I was going through adversity and wasn't sure if I would have enough money to pay the bills every day because that made, made, I made sure that I was listening to a tape every single day. And I was in the Word every day. But now that everything is successful and the business is exploding, it is very difficult to maintain that discipline to stay in the Word every day and to listen to a tape every day because you think that somehow I don't need it quite as much today. See, that's self-deception. So there's outside pressure of circumstances. And when we yield to them and try to solve those problems through the sin nature, that creates the inside pressure of stress in the soul. That's the second attack on the soul is the inside pressure of stress. And then the third attack is just temptation from the soul, from the lust patterns in the soul. And last time as we came to the conclusion, I took us into several psalms to show how the psalmist handles problems of adversity. So I want to Go back to the Psalms this morning and look at two particular passages to see how the psalmist faced adversity and threats to his soul. Psalm 31. Psalm 31. This is a psalm of David. We're not told what the particular circumstances were. It was just a time when he was feeling overwhelmed by circumstances, perhaps pursued by enemies 
or perhaps it might have come later in life during the Absalom Rebellion, we do not know. We do know that many of these psalms strike a chord with us. They resonate in our soul because we go through similar situations in life where we feel uh, attacked, we feel assaulted by circumstances or people or uh, situations. In verse 7, we see a positive statement from, from David. He says, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities. Adversities attack the soul. Well, let's see how how David thought his way through the adversity as he is applying doctrine. In this particular psalm, it's what is called a lament psalm because it focuses on a particular problem. But in this lament psalm begins with a trust section. And he states in verse 1, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Uh, Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. So he starts off by uh, reflecting in a somewhat intimate way in prayer to the Lord that Lord he's basically saying Lord remember you're the one I have confidence in you're the one I'm I'm trusting and then he says don't let me be ashamed in other words don't don't miss this opportunity Lord don't somehow forget about me don't fall asleep at the switch I'm putting all my trust and confidence in you but but don't embarrass me in that situation instead he says deliver me by means of your righteousness, he recognizes this appeal to the integrity of God. He is appealing to the integrity of God, to his righteousness and his justice, to deliver David in the midst of this adversity. And then there's a plea in verse 2. He says, bow down your ear to me. Pay attention to me. See, this this strikes an odd chord with a lot of people because we think, well, God's very busy out there. He has a whole universe to run, and there's billions of people on the planet, and there's just a lot occupying his attention. But David is saying, you know, knock, 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 Lord, pay attention to me. Give me your ear. Come on, come on. The image is he's reaching up and he's grabbing God's ear and pulling it down to him and saying, deliver me speedily. You know, most of us don't have the uh, spiritual guts to say this. Lord, deliver me speedily. Well, you know, it's in God's time. You know, we always have these these super spiritual rationales for not doing something like this. But David says, look, there's a time factor here, Lord. Let's hurry up and speed things up a little bit. Be my rock of refuge and a fortress of defense to deliver me. So he appeals to God to be this, and then in the next verse he says, For you are my rock and my fortress. And we have uh, utilized this imagery of God as our defense, as our rock, as our fortress, and building the concept of a soul fortress made up of various bricks, which are the spiritual skills or stress busters we use in uh, problem solving, and of course the one that is illustrated here in Psalm 31 is the faith rest drill where David is working his way through the characteristics of God, and God is my rock, my fortress, therefore he draws a doctrinal conclusion. There are, therefore he makes an appeal, since Lord you are my rock and my fortress, 
for your namesake, that is for your character's sake, lead me and guide me. So in this first section, he is appealing to God to deliver him. Pull me out of the net, verse 4, which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. This is one way in which the psalmist approaches the problems of adversity. Now I want you to turn over just a couple of pages to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, and we see another reflection on the problem of in the soul. Again, this is a lament psalm where the psalmist is in the midst of some sort of pressure situation, some adversity, and we see how he turns to the Lord. Here he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Those first two lines are synonymous parallelism. What does he mean, disquieted? That to me sounds like a somewhat weak word. In the Hebrew, it is the cow perfect of hamah, which means to roar. To roar. Why is talking about his soul? Why are you roaring within me? See, this is a man who is under distress. He is under so much pressure, he is screaming on the inside. He's talking to himself. He says, why are you cast down? Why are you depressed? Why are you down? Why are you roaring within me? Hope in God. That's where the shift takes place in this psalm from from the focus on the problem to the focus on the solution. Hope, that is, to be confident in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Now let's go back and look at the beginning of the soul, uh, beginning of the psalm. He reminds God of his desire for him in the first uh, two verses. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. I'm so thirsty to know you. He, it's a reference to his positive volition. He's reminding God that, that he is very positive and desires to know doctrine and to have a personal relationship with the God who created all things. Verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And then the hindrance is verse 3, the problem of his adversity. My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? He feels like God's, God's must be taking a nap. God's busy with somebody else's problems. He's not taking care of my problems because the enemies surround me more and more. The problems increase. The difficulties increase. I can't pay my bills. I can't find a job. Uh, I continue to go through the the pressures and stress of a job where they continue to ask more and more of me and want to pay me less and less. We all go through these things, and it seems like we pray again and again and again to the Lord for some sort of deliverance or our option, and nothing happens, and we just think, well, where is God? And I want you to notice how honest the psalmist is with God. See, most of us are afraid to be too honest with God. We, we don't want to scream at God. We don't want to say, well, where are you? Why haven't you answered my prayer? And yet if you read the psalms, that's exactly the kind of honesty that David has. And you only get there if you're a spiritually mature believer. It's not effrontery. It's not blasphemy. It is being honest with God in terms of who we are and what's going on. We don't stop there, though. It's not just screaming at God. 
He starts there, but there's a progression as he focuses more and more on the problem. He begins to shift from the problem to the source of the solution. Verse 4, he says, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. He's not sleeping at night. He just thinks about these things. They they come go through his thinking over and over and over again. And we go through circumstances like that in life where things are we're going through difficult times and we have difficulty sleeping we can't rest we can't relax this is what uh, psalm 55:12 is focusing on casting uh, your cares upon him uh, because the lord will not suffer the righteous to be moved and that idea of casting your cares on him is the idea of of abandoning your problems to god and yet David hasn't reached that point yet here in Psalm 42.4. When I remember these things, he just goes over it and over it and over it again, constantly getting involved. What happens is you get involved in mental attitude sin, you get involved in worry, anxiety, and fear, and one minute you're, you say, okay, I'm going to confess my sin, and the next five seconds later you're worrying about it again, and you're just going back and forth, back and forth all day long, and it may go on for weeks that way. There are sometimes we get in some pressure situations, some circumstances in life where it takes weeks before we really learn to just relax and rest in the Lord. And then five minutes later, we're back in that fear, worry, anxiety mode all over again. And it's only by disciplining ourselves to continue through the process that we learn to grow. And years later, we look back and we say, well, you know, I thought I was failing all the time, but I was learning to trust God in that process. It doesn't come easily. Well, we've read verse 5. Skip down to verse 6. Oh, my God, the psalmist says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan. He's saying, my soul is cast down. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I'm defeated. Therefore, I will remember you. You know, when the problem comes, that's when I will remember you. And it, throughout the land, from, throughout the land of Jordan, from the heights of Mount Herbin to the hill of Mizar, deep calls into deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. It's just like he recognizes God ultimately as a source of testing for us. And these have just, he, he's in a situation where one problem after another just rolled over him. But then he says in verse 8, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me. He focuses on God's faithful, loyal love. Chesed there in verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness. And then in verse 9 he says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? See the honesty here. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's honest about the fact that he is feeling defeated, depressed, and discouraged, but he has not lost the focus. Verse 10, As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Then he comes back to the refrain again, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you roaring within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance, and my God, it is learning to wait on the Lord. But that, see, Christian happiness, tranquility, is not saying everything's going well when it's not. 
That's called denial. What we see here is an honesty with the fact that the circumstances in my life are just pure hell, but somehow God is going to resolve the circumstances. We know the promise of Romans 8.28. For We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the soul's only solution and only hope is in the Lord who is his source of sustenance and stability in times of crisis. Now, having outlined these various problems and various uh, things that attack the soul, we could summarize by saying that the central enemy to our soul is negative volition toward God. Negative volition manifests itself in a lot of different ways. A negative volition is just simply ignoring doctrine. It's just not a priority. There are a lot of people who are negative. They haven't rejected Christ as their Savior. They haven't rejected uh, anything that they have come to learn through the Word. But they show up at church once a week or once a month or once every three or four months. Doctrine isn't a priority. They pop in a tape every now and then. It's not a priority. That is not positive volition. Positive volition is an enthusiastic passion to learn doctrine. You realize if you're not getting it every day, life isn't going to be right. It is a hunger and a thirst. As the psalmist said, my soul thirsts for thee. That's what positive volition is. Negative volition is not simply being antagonistic to the word. It is just not making it the highest priority in life. It is negative volition then that keeps us from being able to properly handle the details of life and the adversities of life and avoid stress that destroys the soul. So as as um, as John ends the second verse, he says, "Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things, and be in health, just as your soul prospers. Now, how has Gaius's soul prospered? We're going to see an indication of this in the next verse. Third John, verse 3, where, he's, where John says to Gaius, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk by means of truth. The emphasis in these next three verses is on truth. It is by means of truth that Gaius walks. Three times truth is mentioned in these three verses, verse two, excuse me, these two verses, verses three and four. John rejoices greatly when brethren came and gave testimony to the fact that you walk in truth. Now let's look and break down what John is saying here because it's important for understanding the stability of soul and happiness that God promises us. He starts off by saying, For I rejoiced greatly. And the word there for rejoiced is the verb Cairo. It is in the uh, aorist active indicative here at Kyrain, and it is the verb Cairo, C H A I R O, and it means to rejoice or to be happy. So John says, I rejoice greatly. I was incredibly happy. It is the, an adverb of, of measure here. I rejoiced. I was exceedingly happy when. 
when the brethren came. And here we have a present middle participle of the deponent verb erikamai that is used as a temporal adverb when the brethren came. And there are two participles here that are linked together, uh, erikamai to come and uh, martyreo to testify. The brethren is a, it's an unusual construction in Greek. It's called a, it's a genitive here, a genitive absolute, which serves as the subject for these two particles. So, our participles. So, when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Now, the point that I want to look at this morning is that John's, John uses the, the word Cairo for faith, I mean, for joy here, which is the basic word used for happiness and joy in the scripture. It's related to the noun kara, translated joy, delight, sometimes, uh, sometimes happiness. So I want to look at the doctrine of inner happiness, especially as it relates to being a stress buster and a problem solving device. Because so often what I teach is that joy is not to be based on circumstances. Our happiness is not to be based on people. It's not to be based on emotion. It's not to be based on circumstances. So what is going on here when John says, Beloved, I pray that you may, you may prosper in all things and be in health, and that I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came. Well, didn't he have joy already? Sure he did. We have to understand some things that I don't think are always brought out when we talk about happiness and the believer's inner happiness and sharing the happiness of God. So let's break it down in several points. First of all, let's look at the words for happiness. In the Greek, you have the word kara, which means joy, delight, or happiness. This word is the word that is found most of the time in the New Testament for joy. It can refer to just an emotional exuberance or it can refer to that inner stability and tranquility that is provided uniquely by God the Holy Spirit. The second word that is used for joy is the word agaliasis. And this has a more exuberant concept. It is usually translated exaltation or exuberant joy or gladness. This is someone who is excited, someone who just got through you know, taking their chemistry final, and rather than getting the C they expected, they got an A+. Plus. You know, this is just unbounded joy. Then the third word that is used in the Greek New Testament is euphrasune. The EU prefix always has, means in Greek something well, something good, something positive. And frasune has to do with a, uh, a state of mind. So it is talking about a very pleasing or pleasant state of mind. It's usually uh, translated like the other two as joy or gladness. These are the main words used in Greek. And then there's a fourth word we find, makarios. Makarios, M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S, which means blessed or happy. Now, the concept of blessing really is much broader than happiness. And the word blessing in both the Hebrew and the Greek 
is a term that is somewhat abstract and difficult for us to get our, our uh, mental fingers around. But probably the wor- one word that comes closest or communicates it best is the concept of happiness. So there are many passages in the Scripture that talk about blessed is the one who meditates on the Word of God day and night, emphasizing the fact that ultimate blessing comes from the Word of God. Now, happiness itself is the opposite of sorrow or sadness. At least that's how we usually think of it. We want to set up a juxtaposition where you're either happy or you're in a state of sorrow. But this is superficial thinking. And so often you'll hear Christians think, I became a Christian and I thought I was going to be happy, that the Lord was going to give me happiness and joy. And ever since I got saved, you wouldn't believe the things that I've had to go through. And that is a problem with a superficial gospel that is presented. And it's also a problem with a superficial understanding of biblical joy and happiness. To bring this out, I want to look at the Greek words for sorrow. The first word that's used for sorrow is the word lupe, L-U-P-E, which means grief, sorrow, sadness, or heaviness, a heaviness of soul. Lupe. Now, lupe is used in Romans 9, 1, and 2. In fact, both of these words that we're looking at here, lupe and adune, are used in Romans 9, 1, and 2. John, uh, excuse me, Paul is writing to the Romans, and he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing witness, bearing me witness by means of the Holy Spirit. So he is in fellowship, he's filled with the Spirit, he's writing under inspiration, and he is going to talk about an emotional state that he has in relationship to, to when he ever thinks about the Jews. Verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow. Now, here's the Apostle Paul. He says, on the one hand, I'm in fellowship. I'm filled with the Spirit. As such, we know he had great personal happiness, inner happiness. But at the same time, he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Both words for sorrow are used here in this particular passage. A person can have inner happiness, stability, contentment, and tranquility, and at the same time be sad, sorrowful, and grieving. And you can only be that way because of doctrine, doctrine in the soul. The second word that's used that we just referenced in Romans 9.2 is adune, which has to do with pain, consuming grief, or distress, whether of the body or of the mind. And then a third word that is used is perilupos, related to our first noun, lupe. Perilupos, which means to be very sad, deeply grieved. The prefix peri indicates that it is an intensification of the noun. And it's used in Matthew 26:38, Mark 14:34, where it has the idea of being exceedingly sorrowful. Now, both of those passages reference the same situation in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
This is before Jesus is going to is arrested, right before he goes to the cross. He knows what is coming. And there we read our Lord saying this. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ who never sins. He is impeccable. He never doubts the Father's plan. He has perfect happiness. Remember, we will see in John uh, 15, he said, My joy I give to you. So if we're going to understand this joy that we have as believers, we need to understand the joy that the Lord had. But in Matthew 26:38, he said to them, that is the disciples, he says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Well, is this some sort of conflict? How can he have perfect happiness and be sad, be sorrowful? Because his soul is weighed down by the fact that he knows he is about to endure the punishment for the sins of the world. There is a sorrow there. He grieves over mankind at the death of Lazarus. Not because Lazarus died. Remember, when Lazarus was sick, Lazarus' sisters sent a messenger to to Jesus and the disciples who were up in the north, up in Galilee, and Lazarus lived down in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. The sisters sent a messenger to Jesus, and they said, Lazarus is sick unto death. Please hurry. So Jesus stayed where he was for four days. Now, if you got a call, if you could heal somebody, and you got a call, so-and-so's about to die, come quickly, what would you do? Well, you wouldn't do what Jesus did. Jesus continued to do what he was doing. He stayed there for four days, but he had a reason in mind. He wanted Lazarus to die. So Lazarus died, and by the time Jesus and the disciples get there, Lazarus has been in the grave for a couple of days. And when Jesus comes to and faces the crowd, he sees the grieving crowd, the pain and the misery that this death has brought into the lives of people. You see, man was not created to go through. We were not designed to die. We were not to designed to suffer loss. That's a penalty, or one of the physical death is a consequence for sin. That's one of the reasons I believe that sorrow and grief at the point of the death of a loved one is so, so hard and so difficult, is because it's God getting our attention that it's not supposed to be this way. It wasn't originally intended to be this way. This needs to remind you of the fact that sin has destroyed life as it should be, and it's only as a result of salvation that there is any recovery. So there is this grief that occurs for in Jesus as he weeps over these mourners who have come to mourn for Lazarus. So we have two episodes here where Jesus grieves with Lazarus in John 11, and then before he goes to the cross, he is sorrowful. And yet his happiness in his life never diminishes. It never decreases. His happiness is completely stable. See, this gives us a whole new look at what happiness Happiness isn't waking up in the morning, bouncing out of bed. I know some of you probably never knew what that means. But waking up in the morning, always being cheerful, always being exuberant, always being upbeat, that is not what the Scriptures talk about when they talk about joy and happiness. So we have to look at the three categories of happiness that are dealt with in Scripture. 
three categories of happiness. Now, these are not based on different Greek words. It's based on looking at the context and understanding human situations. The first type of happiness is simply emotional happiness. Emotional happiness. And that's what most of us think of. If we're not upbeat and happy and really feeling good, then something must be wrong. I'm not experiencing the joy of the Lord. Most people have a silly, superficial view. I'll never forget a situation... Uh, where I first really had this driven home in my uh, first church as a pastor, we had a missions conference, and I invited as a speaker a man who was a I'd gotten to know very well, a good friend of mine at Dallas Seminary, professor at that time named Ron Blue, who's now president of CAM International. And Ron is one of these guys who's just, he is a live wire, he has got more energy than any five people you know, and he always seems to be excited and and happy, just upbeat. He is a fantastic speaker, and this man in the church that um, came out of a kind of a charismatic background uh, afterwards made the comment to me, oh, I enjoyed him so much, you can just see the joy of the Lord all over him. Well, see, that's the kind of superficial attitude people have. This man just is a very upbeat individual. That's his personality. That is not the kind of inner happiness and joy that the Scriptures are talking about as a fruit of the Spirit, or that which Jesus Christ uh, bequeathed to us. It is nothing more than emotional happiness, and it is Satan's counterfeit to genuine happiness. It is designed to confuse and distract people from the genuine stability that is promised us as the real joy produced by the Holy Spirit. Emotional happiness is always transient and fleeting. It is driven by circumstances and by our own uh, biorhythms, if I can use that word. Just some days we're a little more up than other days. This kind of happiness, emotional happiness, can never produce stability, tranquility, or contentment. And it is a terrible barometer of how we are doing in life. You see, the myth that Satan tries to promote is that people, possessions, and pleasant circumstances can make us happy. Satan's propaganda is that the details of life, money, success, pleasure, social life, sexual life, public approbation, fame, or material things, or travel, make us happy. And while these things can provide a legitimate level of enjoyment and pleasure, and we might have a lot of exuberance, over some of these things, we get quite excited about the stimulation they bring. It's not the happiness that is the happiness pr- provided by uh, God the Holy Spirit. We always have to rem- remember that if we are dependent on any person or set of circumstances for happiness, then you become a slave to that person, that emotion, or that set of circumstances. If you think that things have to be a certain way in order to be happy, then what you're saying is that those who control those circumstances control my happiness. What Scripture teaches is that happiness is a product of God the Holy Spirit as a result of our volition. It's based on a state of mind that is controlled by doctrine and an orientation to grace, orientation to doctrine, which produces an orientation to reality. That happiness that we have from the Lord is despite our circumstances, not based on our circumstances. Now, a second category of happiness is what I'll call human good happiness. Human good happiness. 
The reason I say that is because unbelievers can have a measure of stability and tranquility and happiness in life. Now, it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit, so therefore it can only come from the sin nature. It's not personal sin, so it must be human good. Human good happiness is derived from simply compliance with the laws of divine establishment, with good morality and ethics. Someone who has a strong work ethic is successful. That's going to bring a certain measure of stability and tranquility in life. You, uh, this is a result of someone who has a certain level of personal honor and integrity. This is not something that's produced by God the Holy Spirit, but is produced just through uh, orientation to uh, establishment principles. But human good happiness is still the temporal happiness of the unbeliever. It's not permanent. It comes and it goes. He understands basic morality. He understands authority orientation. He operates within those spheres, and therefore he has a measure of stability. But it's still a restricted and temporary happiness. It's a product of the flesh and is vulnerable to environment and negative circumstances. Then we have our third category of happiness, which is related to God, to who God is, and alignment with His plan for our life. This is the happiness that is produced by God the Holy Spirit, what I call inner happiness or spiritual happiness, spiritual stability. It involves contentment and tranquility and stability. It derives from God who produces it as part of the fruit of the Spirit. So this happiness was modeled for us in the humanity of Jesus Christ during the Incarnation, during the time of the hypostatic union. So what do we know about this kind of happiness? Well, first first of all, it is a state of the soul. It is a mental attitude. It is not an emotion. It is not fleeting. It is a result of positive volition toward doctrine and thinking in terms of God's plan for history and your life, and it's not based on thinking about something you don't have, you ought to have, or something someone can do for you. It is not people-based. See, so many people think, well, I have to have good friends in a social life or fellowship to be happy, and that's why you have so many churches that major on a social life, and, and they have all kinds of fellowship hours, and they have Friday night fellowship dinners, and and they have everybody stand up and hug somebody else in church. And so people end up going there because it makes them feel good, and they feel less lonely, and it's a, a measure of uh, happiness from emotional stimulation. But it is not the joy produced by God the Holy Spirit. Happiness comes from thinking, from learning, and applying Bible doctrine. Now, unhappy people try to find happiness through control of their environment in some way. See, if your happiness isn't based on a mental attitude, then your happiness is going to 
have to come from your environment somewhere, either from your own emotions or from the people around you or from the circumstances around you. So what you try to do then in order to be happy is to control the people and the circumstances and the situations around you. People like this try to control their family, friends, and loved ones a number of different ways. One way they do this is by arousing in them a guilt complex or guilt reaction for their behavior. And sometimes you get that from parents. And of course, there are certain ethnic groups that are known for producing guilt. But this is typical of parents who try to manipulate their children through guilt because they're, they want their children to end up in a certain way to live a certain kind of life, and that is where they're putting their happiness. So they try to manipulate their children through guilt. Another way people seek to control those around them is by arousing pity from other people. But the attention you get from pity because of your sickness, your health problems, or your uh, job situation, whatever, is the worst kind of attention that you can get. A third way people seek to control their environment is by manipulating and maneuvering behind the scenes to make sure that everyone acts and behaves the way they want them to and says what they want them to say when they want to say it. And there are people who try run around, spend all their time trying to control everybody in the family just so everybody will be okay and there won't be any problems and then there can be happiness. But that is a pseudo-happiness and doesn't have any kind of stability at all. The kind of happiness that God provides is a problem-solving device. It helps us handle adversity, handle negative situations and circumstances. It protects us from becoming disillusioned in three areas. Sometimes we become disillusioned regarding the circumstances of life. We don't have the money. We don't have the job. We don't have the resources. We don't have the friends that we think we ought to have. Paul faced that. In Philippians 4:11 and 12, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. That means good circumstances, poor circumstances. He's writing this from prison, by the way, not the best of circumstances. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Why? His happiness comes from the Lord. And then Philippians 4.13 is that verse many of you have memorized. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, too often we've memorized that verse out of context, thinking that, well, I can just do anything because Christ strengthens me. That's not the context. The context, I can handle any circumstance. That's what he means. It's not I can do all things, but I can handle any circumstance. I can handle a circumstance of poverty. I can handle a circumstance of abundance. I can handle anything through Christ who strengthens me. So we can become disillusioned regarding our circumstances. We can become disillusioned regarding the details of life. We don't have certain things. We don't have money. Usually is the one we all focus on. Hebrews 13:5 and 6. The writer of Hebrews says, "Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have." 
For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? See, when we don't have the details of life, we still have the God who provides all the details of life and is the God who has, who is the author of sufficient grace and can provide everything for us. And then sometimes we become disillusioned with other people around us and other believers. And so Hebrews 12.2 applies, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him. Notice, for the joy set before him, but was he sorrowful? Yes, he was sorrowful when he's in the garden. Yet he still has joy, so for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, happiness, therefore, is related first to finding a right relationship with God and begins only with salvation. This is why the psalmist said in his confession in Psalm 51.12, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. So joy begins at salvation. You can't have real joy if you're not in right relationship to God. And then this expands through our learning of Bible doctrine. In Nehemiah 8, uh, Nehemiah and the priests had stood up all day and they read from the Scriptures. And the people stood up and listened all day long. And afterwards, this is their response. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, and to, to uh, send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. From the learning of the word, they then were rejoiced and had a tremendous celebration. Therefore, we have to understand that true happiness is found only through grace. And grace orientation is crucial crucial to happiness. Psalm 31.7, the psalmist said, I will rejoice and be glad in thy loving kindness. That's our word chesed, thy faithful, loyal love. Uh, it's, it's grace in action. Because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. Now, when we look at all of this, I want to just develop a new diagram for us to understand Happiness. Two circles. In the inner circle, we have the very core of our soul. When you are a believer filled with the Holy Spirit, advancing to spiritual maturity, then you have plus H, perfect happiness, inner happiness. Now, the capacity for happiness and that inner happiness is going to expand and develop as you grow and mature as a believer. But this characterizes the orientation of your soul. And then this outer circle, we're going to represent, this is where you can have sorrow, on the one hand, or grief, remember Paul said in First Thessalonians chapter 5 that at the death of a loved one we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. There's a legitimate time to have sadness and sorrow and grief. It is not antithetical to the joy of the Holy Spirit. So we can have sorrow, and we can also exult. We can have great joy. We can have great excitement and enthusiasm 
And this, these will be affected by circumstances. So that at the, on the one hand, we have a tremendous sense of stability, we have a sense of tranquility, we have a sense of contentment because we know that God is in charge. On the other hand, someone close to us has died and we're miserable. We go through a situation with a job loss or some kind of pressure at work and we're, we're not very happy with the circumstances and uh, we may be staying awake at night. But at the same time, we know that God's in control. There's stability, there's peace, there's calm. And so it may sound like we're, we're, we're almost uh, have some sort of a schizophrenic situation here, but the reality for the unbeliever is there's no core of inner happiness there, and all there is is being tossed to and fro by every wind of circumstance. So there is no uh, real stability or real tranquility. It's just a matter of pulling yourself up by your own bootstrap sort of thing, which eventually... Uh, fails. Now I've covered about eight points or so on um, on this. I haven't outlined the points, but I've covered about half of what I have to cover on uh, happiness. And so we'll come back, and next Sunday morning we will finish our study of happiness and how happiness relates to a problem-solving device and how we use it in that way with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness and your grace. We thank you that you are the one who provides uh, real happiness and tranquility and contentment for each of us. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what we have studied this morning and that as we continue to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, we'll see this fruit produced in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to believe that Jesus Christ and a belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is necessary for salvation, not trusting in anyone else or in anything else, but simply believing that by his death on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for your sins. It was all accomplished at that time so that all you have to do is rest or relax in his finished work. You can do that right now, right where you sit. You don't need to make a bargain with God, reform your life, or wait until more advantageous circumstances. The eternal issue is right now. Once you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. It can never be lost. It can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.